to episode 30 of Pounding the Table. Let's call this one the Dirty 30 because over the past two weeks, we've been in the trenches absolutely digging away at some of these names. And Tony's finally back. Thankfully, his family's doing a lot better. And we're bringing a fellow pounder into the mix. He wants to talk about what it means to become a pounder, do a deep dive into NVDA, offer new perspectives on CMLF, shed some light on what the heck happened with TDOC, and finally, why people are still misunderstanding skills. Real quickly, before we dive in, want to touch on earnings that are coming up this week. Monday, not a ton. Tuesday, we got Pfizer coming up, Upwork, Activision, Zillow, and of course, the biggest one for me is going to be skills we'll be keeping an eye on. Wednesday, we got some more with PayPal, Rocket, Uber, Etsy, Twilio, Fastly, and Mercado Libre. Thursday, another big one, we got Wayfair, Viacom, Moderna, Fiverr, Beyond Meat, Datadog, Cloudflare, Peloton, Square, AMC, and of course, Roku, which Leon Lotto is absolutely pounding the table on after a crazy Google earnings be. Finally, to round the bases here with that nice sports analogy. Great work, Avi. We'll be talking about DraftKings. So very excited about today's episode. Let's dive in. For those of you who are new, Pine the Table is a podcast by Avi Mash and Anthony Ohai and yours truly talking about the stock market, the art of options trading. And each week we analyze the news and provide our insights and opinions around how we think the markets will be impacted. Quick disclaimer here, everybody knows the rules. The thoughts on this podcast are purely that of opinion and of our own personal investments. Everything said on every episode of Pine the Table, as well as our own Twitter account, are not and never should be used as financial advice advice, recommendations, or solicitations. And ladies and gentlemen, we have a special guest here with us today. Many of you may know him from Twitter already. He's been pumped up for this very moment the past few weeks, and the time is here, folks. It is Friday, and he's going to be bringing that Nashville heat. Ladies and gentlemen, we have Mr. Dom Rinaldi. Welcome to the table, Dom. Thanks, Avi. Glad to be here. We're happy to have you, man. And you've reached out to us, you know, over and over again. You were pounding the table here with full page write-ups. Finally had the opportunity to chat with you. And instantly we knew we had to bring you onto the show to pound the table on some of these stocks. Before we jump into those stocks, you know, want to introduce yourself. For those of you who may not know Dom yet, you know, who is Dom Rinaldi? Who are you as a person, as an investor? You had shared this, you know, what it meant to be a pounder for you prior to having this conversation here today. And I'd love for you to share that. So Dom, just tell, tell, tell Pound Nation who you are. Yeah, yeah. So I'm 36 years old. I have uh, a wife of 11 years and a six-year-old daughter and three-year-old son. And you know, one of the things around what it means to me to be a pounder is doing your own due diligence and researching the companies you like that we talk about. Earn the right to pound the table on that stock. You can't mm-hmm. pound the table if you don't earn the right for conviction on that stock and be able to simply explain what they do and why you invested in them. That then will allow you to have the best returns yet. Tony, how often do we say the exact same thing over and over and over? And so like hearing that from a pounder, that just brought a smile to my face because I was like, okay, people out there do get that and do understand that. So Dom, that made us so happy to actually hear that from you. And I think it's important to share with everyone else in Pound Nation. So 
Dom, you know, tell us a little bit more about yourself as, as an investor. You were talking a little bit about, you know, your, your childhood kind of growing up and really formed who you are as a person here today. Yeah, yeah. So I, um, my dad was in the military for 26 years and uh, was a military brat, and we didn't have a lot of money. So uh, we're not really used to investing. Um, what I grew up from financial uh, education for my parents was, you know, spend what you have. Don't make big purchases where you can't pay those bills and live a frugal mm -hmm. life and then also save. And so I did that and had a, a decent amount of savings going into college. And then when I graduated college from Purdue University, uh, my uncle said, you know, hey, and he's been investing for a long time. He said, you want to be a millionaire when you're 50? And I said, yeah, who wants to be a millionaire when you're 21 years <laughs> old? Tell it. me, like, <laughs> yeah, like, tell me what's going on. And he was like, it's simple. You just have to be disciplined and save the max back then was $5,500 a year in a Roth, put it in the S&P 500 index fund. And immediately every time dollar cost average and max that out every year till you're 50. And it'll compound based on what the average has always been about seven or 8%. And you'll have your million dollars. So I did that. I did that for 11 years, never looked at it. We had the 0809 crash, um, you know, just kept following being disciplined. But then I didn't realize two years ago, I get all these Motley Fool advertisements and everything else. And I see results that people are beating the market, like majorly thousand percent returns. And I'm like, I want that. Like, I get it. I want to be a millionaire by 50, but can I be a millionaire like by 40 or 35? Um, and so uh, I naively sold all my SPY out of one of my accounts and what they were pumping was or advocating was their cannabis fund. And unfortunately, I got in in February of 2019 at the all-time highs. And I did do my own DD, guys. I researched. I listened to Bruce Linton on Canopy Growth. He started it all. Uh, I looked at the investments that Constellation was backing there. Uh, but at the end of the day, I was at the height of the bubble. So I got firsthand experience to see my accounts go 60% down in the red immediately uh, on a substantial amount of investments. So I learned how to just stomach the punch and realize this is long-term investing. It's okay. Is my thesis broken? No. Do I think cannabis is going to be legalized long-term? Yes. Um, and I did invest some profitable MSOs, and they've done well since then. But the other half of that investment was what I'm used to in my, my actual area of expertise, which is IT. I've been in IT sales for over 20 years. And so I invested in Shopify back in 2019, uh, Mercado Libre, NVIDIA, which we'll talk about. Uh, and uh, I'm leaving one out here uh, in the trade desk with Jeff Green, a fabulous CEO. Mm -hmm. So those returns helped me beat the market for my first year, which felt good. And then last year uh, was a phenomenal year for most investors. I finished at 142% to the market last year. Wow. That's phenomenal, Dom. And, and, and it's always interesting coming, you know, back to this notion that we talk about, you know, Tony's 24 years old. I'm in my early 30s myself. You know, you have a family, right? And so we all come from different backgrounds. And that's what we pound all the time on is we all do come from different backgrounds. We're all making different amounts of money. We all have different risk tolerances, you know. So I thought it was really interesting, too, in, in terms of how you position your own bonsai that we were discussing, you know, prior to the show as well, talking about how you have your core, right? And then you had this amazing phrase called like world changers, which Tony and I talk about all the time. We haven't had coined that amazing phrase that you said, you know, invest in world changers, Avi. 
Can you talk a little bit about that and, and share what you meant by those types of companies? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think one of the things the market um, doesn't take into consideration that there are visionary leaders that have changed our world and changed the way we do life. And those companies continue to innovate and create new values that you couldn't even have imagined 10 years ago. And we'll talk about how NVIDIA is doing that now. And you can look at how Shopify has done that and so many other companies. But you have to take into consideration the fundamentals of the business and the growth that they're able to do with the cash flows they're able to generate so they can create new values uh, that you wouldn't even imagine. You can't predict on a fundamental PE scale or a, a DCF cash flow. So you have to think about the leadership, the founder leaders, the what they're trying to achieve. And those are going to be the, the companies, those four percenters of the, of the market that change the market for, for long term. I love everything that you're saying there about these world changers. But one thing to really consider is that those are the ones that are maybe going to have the toughest time as stocks initially. You know, those companies will have to pour a lot of money into getting that revolutionary technology to work and, and distributing it. Or they're going to be having to spend a lot of time and maybe have those issues on the way there that'll cause those steep drops over time. And so you have to have that conviction, like you were saying, that long-term perspective. And you know, a perfect name to segue here into is NVIDIA. And I know that both of us are big, huge pounders on that one. In fact, I wrote an article. I mean, it was really a presentation for a Goldman Sachs competition back in college. But I wrote this back when NVIDIA was sub 100. And I was predicting, it was basically a, a pair trade. It was a long and a short. And my long was NVIDIA and my short was Intel. Right. But during that time, along the way, in the, over five years, it had a base period of three years. It had a 100 percent run and then a 70 percent drop and another one during the, uh, the trade war in 2018. So this was a lot of different things that are happening. But now it's one of these blue chip best must own kind of long term companies that easily could go to a trillion dollars in the next five or 10 years with all that they're doing. And I just want to share a little bit about my investment thesis back from 2016, because it's been five years, right? And I can see, and we'll talk about this, the differences between then and now. But looking back on the reasons why it happened and why I think my prediction was extremely right was I was factoring in things that were very, very hard to factor in. They weren't just these numeric projections. They were having to think outside the box because the technology was advancing, the data, the processing, everything that you can do with the technology was advancing so quickly that I didn't know where it was going, but I knew it was just gonna be all about the data. So you know, it was contingent on three comprehensive macroeconomic trends is that growing demand for artificial intelligence and cloud computing will only continue to grow. And of course, cloud computing will turn into quantum computing, and it's going to be about who has the most data. It's going to be about the sustained growth and consolidation of the semiconductor industry. Because obviously, at that point, it's who can process the fastest, who can produce at the best cost, the best margins, and who's actually just the smartest. It's really just what is your number in comparison to the other producers of your chips. And that is just what happened here. And of course, there's another thing that just kind of oversees everything here is that Moore's law slowing down, right? We saw that the number of silicon transistors that you can actually put in that square chip is supposed to be halved every 18 months or such. But it became at a point where it became so difficult to actually combine that digital processing speed with a physical hardware component, right? So things have changed so quickly. Like I remember when I was talking about NVIDIA back then, there's gonna be this major growth in deep learning across all its platforms, right? Gaming, professional visualizations, data centers and automotive, right? And at the time, data centers, people didn't even know what that was. NVIDIA had one supercomputer at 256 gigabytes or something. And that was the only one, and that was the fastest one in the world. 
And now they own something like crazy. We'll get into those numbers, but it's insane how much they've grown. But no one was really pro projecting that the data centers would be the highest margin business that's going to grow and take their thing. It, no one knew that it was going to be just about the processing data and how quickly and how best and most innovatively you can use that data to, to just get these data engineered results. And from that, you can kind of pivot into any industry because everything's becoming tech, everything's going that way. So that's why you know I think that understanding that these companies have a life of their own, they have these cycles, right? And it may take a while. This took six years for the thesis to fully realize. And it's still being realized. There's still things that are growing and changing. Of course, now the revenues are in line. The profits are in line. It's a different stock. It's it moved into that blue chip status. But it wasn't for a long time. There's been many 50 plus percent diffs. And people thought it was over a lot of times, Dom. So I want to talk to you about that and just kind of how far it's come and kind of just kind of relate that to everything else that can happen in the market with the names that we talk about a lot. No, I totally agree, Tony. And where NVIDIA is today and what they announced on their investor presentation just a few weeks ago uh, was revolutionary in where they're headed as a company. They are looking at redefining what compute is. And in fact, they refer to themselves as a computing platform. And that platform is intersecting with all of the leaders in industry across the world, ranging from customers like Walmart, Verizon, Google, NASA, Facebook, AWS, Audi, the list goes on and on. And so what you see is they've created a level of optionality and a, a level of partnership that is gonna continue to provide exponential revenue and profit growth that they then can reinvest into different parts of their business that create new value that you can't put a price on because it hasn't been done yet. And some of the things that they're looking at doing, they kind of break it down into five different categories. Uh, the first one is acceleration and computing being the path forward. And with AI so writing software, AI is the software writing software, uh, making it more efficient, going back to Moore's law and going back to more efficiency and automation. The data center is the new unit of computing. They've created a DPU chip that has all the components needed to provide for a data center in a box and then provide the security with zero trust security and micro segmentation built into it. And they're applying it into their gaming cloud service, but they're also applying it to the enterprise. So they're looking at all the different optionality they can create with their technology and it's second to none. That's why they have all these partnerships with these different companies. And they also understand that the fourth industrial revolution is around artificial intelligence on 5G and what new innovations we're going to have with autonomous driving, drones, VR, AR, all of that. And as you guys may know, AI has been a hot buzzword uh, for many years now, but it's not a buzzword anymore. And it wasn't five years ago. And I think Tony was able to discover this with NVIDIA. Tony, can you just talk a little more about what you saw when you did that write-up for that contest? Yeah, absolutely. But back to the AI part here. Um, back in 2016, when I wrote this, AI was still that buzzword that people were not sure what the heck's going to happen with this thing. Is it going to be embedded into all parts of our life? And I just thought, hey, like eventually there's going to be a point. And like it goes back to the singularity concept. Like eventually 
if we are getting smarter, we're producing smarter objects and those objects will eventually be able to produce for themselves, right? Like, and so when you're looking at AI, like that was always gonna be something that would end up hitting that singularity level. It's just a question of when, right? And now we're way more advanced and we can understand the actual comparison between like a human brain and human processing and an artificially intelligent brain and that's processing. And the thing is that we as humans can only get so smart without the in, like embeddedness of AI, maybe into our like Neuralink brains or whatever one day, but for what it is now, there's going to be a point where AI will get to that point. And it was just in 2016, it just had barely started. So I saw this, this chart when I was writing this report, and it was predicting a 55.1% CAGR in AI. And this is one of those things where people are looking at documents and wondering, hey, is this going to be accurate? Are these revenue projections like correct? Like you look at CMA4, you know, CMLF, they're projecting a lot of new pieces of data of their revenues. Like they're going to be getting it from different sources and different legs. NVIDIA, AI could just go into anything, right? Like, and that's the same reason I like SEMA4 is because AI is really just, it's just, you can put that in any industry in just whatever way works best for it. And that, and it includes all the buzzwords of machine learning and deep learning and everything. It's all, it's neural nets. It's all the same pretty much. Like when you just think who has the best data and NVIDIA was crushing it in this space with the highest processing and these GPUs and GPUs were becoming way more important than these CPUs because some of these GPUs have built-in CPUs and they don't need a separate CPU to do that, what they're doing now. And so that 55% CAGR definitely happened. It was in millions, it was less than 2 billion a year for 2015, 2016, 2017, 2018, 2019. But then 2020, it started becoming absolutely exponential. And it's just going to be one of those things that it just takes time to understand that the world needs to catch up to that position. And once we're there, which I think we're kind of there now, I think everyone's really, it's become normalized thinking about AI and where we can take it to. And so NVIDIA is like in the forefront of that now, but I just wanted to touch that that's something that you had to kind of think outside the box for, because there wasn't a lot of projections on how it'll be applied and in what ways will they benefit from it. Yeah, and I think it will kind of just go exponential too. I know, Dom, you were talking about like how 5G, I know every T-Mobile and AT&T, everyone's like, yeah, we got 5G, but it's not really, really here, right? So what? how is 5G going to influence or affect AI? And, and will we see this exponential growth even go parabolic perhaps? Yeah, no, I, I think there's certain parts of 5G that are already here. But the overall application and creativity that these new companies and startups are going to create uh, is still in development. Uh, until we have the full network rolled out, I don't think we'll fully see the capabilities of what's possible. But I think that, uh, and we'll talk about what we do have already with NVIDIA, but just to take a step back around being a visionary leader and building a winning culture at a company, I think that's what you look at the core for these world changers companies. And with Jensen Wong, you look at his Glassdoor ratings, 99% out of 844 employees. That means that no one that actually took the time to rate him said anything negative. 98% people who join Glassdoor who are NVIDIA employees say they would recommend working here. It was the second highest employer's choice awards last year. And Jensen Wong was named the number one CEO in 2019. He was also in the top uh, 15 in 2017, 2016, 2013. And it was the best places to work in 2012, 2015, 2017, 2018, 2019, 2020, 2021. What does that tell me as an investor? They are building a winning culture that people want to be a part of long-term and help change the world. You can't put a price on that kind of visionary teamwork and innovation. So when you have the top talent and the top data scientists and the top leadership teams, 
you also get the top partnerships and then can provide optionality and scale that you can't predict on a CNBC show of looking at technicals and looking at charts. Uh, <laughs> Tesla. You, know, you can't see that. Tesla. Tesla. Yeah, exactly, Tony. And you look at the chart yeah. that we talked about when we were calling NVIDIA, it sat straight sideways for over 10 years. Tesla sat for five years straight sideways. You're looking at a lot of other companies that are doing this now, and we're going to talk about that. You have to have patience if you believe in the thesis and you believe that the company is a world changer. And then for you ESG investors who want to look at companies that are also focused on giving back and making a sustainable world, they also were named the 2020 best ESG company. They were the number one by Green 500 list, and they powered 26 of 30 top supercomputers in the world with their GPU cards. So they care about giving back. People want to be a part of this. So I think that's important when you look at a company. Talking about these world changers, right? And I think it's important to say, you know, many people, especially in this kind of YOLO mentality, people want things yesterday, right? They don't have time to wait. Everyone's so ADD, everyone's so impatient. Like, how do you do it? You're, you were telling me that you almost have like a separate portfolio or a separate section in your head mentally for these game changers to allow them to sit for 10 years. Just expound on that a little bit if you could. Yeah, no, it's a great question, Avi. And I think it's important as an investor to know yourself, know what you're trying to accomplish. For me, myself, I'm 36. I would love to just talk about stocks uh, for the rest of my life and get paid. And that's the work I want to do. That's retirement for me. I don't want to be on a golf course 24 seven. I want to talk about the importance of investing and how it can provide your family generational wealth and get people doing that. And we need to provide education in our school system as well so kids can start early. Like Tony started at 16. I'm 36. I didn't start individual investing till age 34. He has such a leg up. And I want everyone on and the Twitter community, the FinTwit community has been such an awesome place to interact and learn from so many great investors out there. And that's how I got started with the pounding of the table. I've listened all listened to all the episodes twice over, uh, and still take notes from the Pounder's Bible and go back and revisit. It's important to journalize what you're doing when you look at investing. Um, so sorry for that tangent there, but I think it's important to highlight that um, diversification and building a base of the bonsai. So the base of the bonsai are these fundamental companies that are maybe a little more stable. They have a larger market cap. And they have cash flows that will continue to create optionality. So for me, my base of my bonsai was NVIDIA, Trade Desk, Mercado Libre, and Shopify. And then I had a couple of moonshots in there early on where I got into Digital Turbine at $5 a share. It's $75 a share now. But it's all about making sure you know what that money is used for. I know that this money will not be touched until I'm at least 50 years old. So I'm okay if we go through another downturn because I know what I'm looking for is, do I have that dry powder to take advantage of it? Because I'm looking at like, <laughs> what is on sale? Are you kidding me? C-Limited is $200 a share. Let's go. I'm pounding the table. <laughs> yeah. When so, did DJ give us apps, by the way? Didn't DJ give us apps, Tony? Like yeah, way back uh, early in the day. Way back. Like it was like so cheap. But shout, out, shout out Warren's Buffett real quick on that. That's, a, that's incredible. Yeah. I, I just think that uh, diversification on that and Tony and you have been talking about this for so long. So I hope people are listening that you have to really know yourself and what you're investing for. And the cool thing about that too, is like thinking about your investment, like the differences in buying NVIDIA or apps, right? Like apps at $5, a little is all you need. 
and a little is all you want if you're wrong like whatever that uh, that adage is it's very true honestly like mm. and that's why the smaller cap names get that smaller percentage portfolio allocation for each of them and then a smaller total percent of it in comparison to that base which would be like you know the base of the bonds i for those listening is just the core of your portfolio that you refuse to sell in any situation because those are the ones that are going to be holding up the strongest those are the companies that have those revenues you don't have to worry about the value compression mm-hmm. you don't have to worry about them not succeeding because they've already proven themselves right and then those smaller companies can become that right like back in 2016 dom you said that nvidia now ha- like right now you said that nvidia has 26 out of 30 of the computers the supercomputers in the world right back right. then NVIDIA, when I wrote this, had the only supercomputer in the world, a DGX-1, and it meant it's to meet the unlimited computing needs of AI. And now we have little DPUs. And, and I see this chart that you keep showing about NVIDIA's investor presentation. I had the first three segments of it. There was not the fourth or the fifth segment because technology had not gotten there yet, right? And now that it's gotten there, it's moved itself into a base of a bonsai position because before then it was very volatile. It was moving up and down 40, 50%. It would run 100% and then drop in half for whatever reason. But now we see that things are different. Yeah, Tony, you're so right. Uh, their DPU technology has created a whole new realm of compute. And you can see through their platform of the adoption already that is being taken from all kinds of industries. They're in climate and weather. They're in scientific visualization. They're in genomics. They're in medical imaging. They're in AR, VR, ray tracing and rendering, game development, astronomy, and molecular dynamics. That's a lot of industries, don't you think? And with that, they have over 1 billion CUDA GPUs. Okay, CUDA is their platform for diagnostics of DNA sequencing and genomics and high HPC compute. They also have 150 different SDKs and 7,500 AI startups. They're helping create the new companies that are changing our world. They are a platform. That's why they call themselves NVIDIA is a computing platform. It's not a semiconductor computer, uh, semiconductor company anymore. So I think that's a big misnomer when everyone wants to label them with Intel and everyone else. They're a software company. They're a hardware company. They're a healthcare company. They are in everything. And if you look at their new DGX boxes, this is their data center that you were talking about, data center in a box. Their first one is DGX A100, and it's a building block to get into their two higher levels. And then they go to their DGX station A100, which is a full AI-driven data center in a box. And that has the compute power of over a million dollars of what a two-socket server compute farm would cost they're able to provide it for $149,000 out the box or $9,000 as a subscription, hardware as a service. So not only are they doing that, this now, listen to the throughput they're able to provide in this compute. 320 gigabytes at eight terabytes a second, a second. They are redefining the compute. So what's to say that we're not even talking about could they be a cloud computing company of their own, like an AWS or a Alibaba or Oracle Cloud? Absolutely. What's stopping? Exactly. I could see them going. It's it's always going to be about, and the same thing with Tesla, right? Like that's why Elon feels the way he feels. It's he's he said this in an interview the other day. I was watching it. He said it's all about who can get the best data team, and he's like, we're assembling one of the best teams in the entire world, 
next to very few people are like up at this level. And I think NVIDIA is probably one of the only people who are at that level. And in fact, maybe higher just because that's all they focus on. And, and I think that because they are the ones that are producing the things that people are using to be a cloud computing company, and like they're already partnered with all these people, Microsoft, IBM, like so many different people that they're working with. Mm-hmm. There's just an infinite number of realms that they can go into as technology, just in our general world over time just becomes more and more a part of every day. And you always want to go for that efficiency and optimization. So you go for the fastest, the cheapest, and the most effective. And that is what you get here with NVIDIA. And if they're already going into genomics, I think they'll get into anything that they think would be profitable for them. Yeah. And the only concern is like, when do they become a monopoly? Well, and that's what's interesting too, because like looking at their customer base, you know, we were looking at the chart initially where it was like Bitcoin, that was the big first launch or the first ramp for NVIDIA. Uh, and now I'm just looking at their customer base. They have folks in auto with, you know, partnerships with BMW, Audi, Honda, Mercedes, Volvo, Toyota, uh, data centers. I saw that they're partnered with AWS today in the cloud computing Azure as well. So for some of the retail investors like myself that may not be like fully aware of what this all means, how could they then move from that partnerships to, to doing this themselves? And more about that customer base. One thing I found fascinating is it's not a fastly situation where 90% of the revenue comes from one specific company, right? They're pretty spread out. So touch on that a bit too, if you could. I think you're, you're spot on there. And it's not a concentrated customer base because to Tony's point, the AI that they're creating and the uh, application of it is applicable to all these different industries. So with that, they're getting the top, banks, they're getting the top aerospace, they're getting the top healthcare companies. Now, I don't know if they become their own data center company, but I'm throwing it out there because we didn't know that they were going to create DPU cards five years ago. We didn't know that they were going to create the fastest supercomputers for genomics. Uh, We didn't know that they were going to partner with uh, drug discovery companies. One of the big announcements they made on their investor presentation is they're investing uh, and partnering with the best drug discovery company out in the world, which is Schrodinger. And Schrodinger's backed by Bill Gates. There's a lot of money backing that. So they have a $1.25 trillion market opportunity, and they're helping the top 3,000 pharma companies do drug discovery with their Clara software on these DGX computers. So don't you think now they're going to actually be able to help accelerate what other genomic companies are doing because their compute's the fastest? And that's what Tony hit on earlier. So partnerships, I think, is a better way for them to expand. And that also kind of eliminates the monopoly concern because if they're helping every single vertical be more efficient, lower costs, and revolutionize their industry, why would we want to put a stop to that? That just doesn't make sense. And even for them themselves, I just don't see why they would, you know, in their own interest, the best thing for them is to partner, right? Because you're getting royalties, you're getting commissions. And in fact, the margins are way higher than if you were to do it all yourself, right? All you're doing is saying here, like, these are the tools, everyone else who's building something, hey, just build with these tools, we've got you and we'll take a cut of that. So we're doing hardware and software as a service. And that's just how it kind of is. And I think that the world will move towards that more and more. As I was saying, like in 2016, it's moving way more away from these like hardware devices, like back in Intel, you know, those chips are meant to process just things like laptops and computers right now. But the tasks that are at hand that we need to process and get data engineered insights and solutions from, 
need more than that. They need the processing speed and, you know, they need the petaflops, the, the terabytes, the migs, the gigabytes. They need all of that more than just how many, like the, what's the processing gigahertz. Like that's, it needs more than that to accomplish the difficulty of tasks. It's like Bitcoin hash rate, right? Like every block is harder than the last. Everything that we have to solve in this world technologically is harder than the last thing. Yeah. Avi and Tony, we talked about DPU and how they're changing the data center, but let's take it a step further and how they're changing compute. They're changing the throughput for the data center on servers. When we look at what GPUs can do, there's bottlenecks. From the memory to the GPU, there's a bottleneck at 64 gigabits per second. And so what that does is you have to have more boxes. And so instead of continuing on in the industry with this, they created a new card called the Grace card. This Grace memory to GPU card is able to unlock 2,000 gigabits per second, 30 times faster compute for data center AI and data science. This is applicable to all different kinds of industries for high performance computing. So this is a whole new card that they've created. They're putting it in the world's fastest supercomputer for AI at 20 exaflops of AI. I don't even know how much that is, Tony. Is that a real number, exaflops? It is. When I was first looking at this back in the day, like five, six years ago, those numbers, I don't think I had ever heard them, right? Because like it was just like this computer is 256 gigabytes of RAM. Like That was like the hot stuff at the time, right? Now we have these, these data processing units and they're like, oh, they're creating the supercomputer chip for the supercomputer that they first made back in 2016. So it's that unanticipatable value that's now coming to fruition. And you can see that in real world applications, which is super cool, but I have no idea how much, like that. that's a lot of flops. Yeah. And, and this expert for... Uh, the Los Alamos National Laboratory said, thanks to NVIDIA's new Grace CPU, we'll be able to deliver advanced scientific research using high fidelity 3D simulations and analytics with data sets that are larger than previously possible. They're creating value that is unforeseen here. And so what they've said is they're going to provide three different kinds of chips with yearly leaps on the architecture, or actually it's one architecture altogether. So they're gonna have their GPU cards that have been very successful and have grown their revenues. They're gonna have their new Grace CPU cards, and they're gonna have their new data center DPU cards, their Bluefield chips, and they're gonna alternate releases for every 18 months. And if you look at the progress that they're making, the difference between Bluefield 2 now and Bluefield 4 in 2024 is 100 times performance. So this is only going to get better. Why would I not want to upgrade if I can get 100 times better performance? So there's a lot of unforeseen technology and access to compute that we're not even going to see yet. They're even in cybersecurity with their NVIDIA Morpheus because they understand that we are in a cybersecurity war right now. And so with that, they actually are able to have network security and real-time telemetry data on their NVIDIA Morpheus chip for the data center. And looking at what they're doing with this enterprise AE, thousands of companies are using this in different means. You look at Pinterest, they're using it to identify trends in over 300 billion pins for better search results. WeChat uses it for intelligent search for over 1.2 billion users. The U.S. Postal Service uses this for real-time analytics on 7 billion packages per year. 
And then, of course, we can't forget Spotify, personalized playlists for over 345 million listeners. They're changing how we're living, and this is passes the snap test. If we were to snap our fingers and it was gone tomorrow, we would feel that impact. And so with that, uh, let's look at the revenues. What does this all yeah, mean? Show me the money. Show me the let's, money. Yeah. Cool tech means nothing if you can't actually produce money and profits, right? Like that's capitalism at its finest. So looking at this, we have over $16 billion, 16.7 they did last year. From four years ago, they did $6.9 billion in FY17. And so majority of that revenue now is no longer just gaming. Their data center revenues make up over 40% of their revenue. It was only 7% in FY16 when Tony was writing about it. Oh. And it's growing at an 82% CAGR uh, annually. Now, the other thing that everyone's been knocking NVIDIA about is it's not a hardware company anymore. It's a software company. They're operating at 66% gross margins. And they're taking their operational margins at the end of the day, after all overhead, from FY17, they had 32% operating margins and FY21, 41%. They're growing and becoming more efficient in how they're delivering their tech and they're expanding their customer base with these partnerships. I love that. And, and I couldn't uh, hear you say that without thinking BlackBerry inherently, which is a company obviously we've discussed, but taking this approach where you're now looking at this five-year window, right? So they're considered a blue chip now, let's say, but they're still growing exponentially. They're still pivoting, right? From a hardware to a software company. You know, you discuss how they're even getting into genomics. So CMLF is a company that is near and dear to all of Pound Nation. Tony pretty much has a, everything but a tattoo at this point. So, so far. You know, touch yet. on a little bit yet. more about, <laughs> about that. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I would love to hear just more about the genomics and, and looking at some of these stocks again, Tony, I know we wanted to reflect a little bit. The past couple of weeks have been a little bit treacherous for some of these, but then taking this new approach and this new mindset that Dom is talking about where maybe it's okay to have some treachery. Maybe it takes a year or two for some of these names to really evolve, but taking that notion, like how do you look at this, Tony? Is, is this a company now with CMLF that's going through that NVIDIA phase from a couple years ago, do you think? Yeah, I think one of the most important things to touch on in this time is like really to zoom out. And we've been mentioning that a lot, but I think it's like something we have to hammer home and pound, pound the table on because when you really think about these companies, like it did take five years for everyone to catch up with, right? Tesla as well. And, and NVIDIA way before that, right? It was basing for that 10-year period in the 2000s. So these companies have to catch up to the world that they're living in right now. The world needs to catch up to them as well. And so when they overshoot, NVIDIA was producing so much and growing in so many different ways that the world just wasn't ready for. Like think about crypto. It exploded in 2017, but it wasn't the infrastructure, the belief, the understanding that the world will become decentralized, obviously, was a very, very hard thing to understand for the mass psychology of you know the human race but now you see companies like all over the place square paypal who name it and they probably tesla getting into bitcoin and getting into crypto right so it just solidifies and vindicates the fact that nvidia was doing the right stuff the whole time the world just didn't realize it until it was five years later and the stock had become like a 50 bagger right from 15 or whatever it was at when this was all just starting and they were talking about this and they were already crushing amd and intel and so that was the thing that I really I want to hammer home here. And I love that we started with NVIDIA as like a base of the bonsai because 
in five years, things look a lot different. The world looks a lot different and your portfolio will look a lot different if you pick the right companies. And you have to have that conviction though, because if you're an NVIDIA and you see that 280 to 140, whatever drop because of crypto and you don't believe in crypto, then you're out of the company. But if you understand the, the amalgamation of all of it and understanding where the world's gonna go in a futuristic sense, it's a very different outcome. And so genomics is one of those things, right? And obviously NVIDIA is getting into that now with their track record, obviously there's a reason they're getting into it now. And so all these other companies are hitting the market now because this is one of those spaces that we've revolutionized so many different things, right? We've turned real estate digital, we've turned so many things onto that technological infrastructure kind of thing. And it's like genomics in our health is just kind of starting. And that's one of the biggest costs to the entire world. And I just wanna hammer the fact of like CMLF's revenue structure over the next three or four years reminds me a lot of NVIDIA's just because a CMLF is an AI centered, it's literally called centralist focused platform that will get those seven different revenue legs over time, right? And right now they're just doing this like kind of uh, direct testing. So you can kind of think of that as NVIDIA selling GPUs, right? But over time that produces income that produces revenue for them and they can pivot and add new legs, right? Like CMLF still has a lot of cash. NVIDIA has done a gargantuan amount of acquisitions over the last like five to 10 years. And they, and they are doing that to make themselves a universal platform for whatever your supercomputing and eventually quantum computing and 5G needs, whatever are going to be. NVIDIA is doing that. And so, and CMLF is earlier on, they're five years earlier than NVIDIA is or 10 years, whatever you, whatever, what have you. But over time, it will get there. And right? you can kind of see that now with the way that they're growing. As soon as they hit the market, they got this partnership with North Shore for 300,000 new genomic patients of clinical data to come. And they have Eric Schad, of course, named the Entrepreneur of the Year in 2020. They have this new 70,000 square foot facility and they began testing newborns ahead of schedule. It's just this unanticipatable value like with NVIDIA, it's just, it mm. takes time to understand that because of the data you get, you'll be able to manufacture new drugs, which you'll get a portion off of. Because of the secondary data insights program that they're gonna have and licensing that out to other people, they put their drugs and their information of their patients and clients in there, and they can understand better what they can do for themselves, right? So they're not the ones that are only doing the labor intensive stuff, right? So like NVIDIA creating GPUs, that's a hardware to, you know, distributing that to retail. That's like a business, you think of that like Amazon, the margins are less mm. on that than they are on their supercomputing or their GPUs. And that's kind of what I'm thinking with CMLF here, because 86% of their revenue is just that direct testing. And then a lot of it right now is COVID testing and such like that. But over time, it'll move on to oncology uh, data insights. It'll be data engineered, secondary data insights for all healthcare in general, right? Mm -hmm. you'll, 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 there's so many different industries that it'll go into that are within the health space, those niches that need to be fulfilled at some point for the entire space to advance. But it's just that could take some time but they're really steamrolling here. And I, I and I just keep thinking that the amount of cash they have and how fast they're moving on with things, I think it's gonna happen a lot faster, right? It said 55% CAGR over five years and Dom just said 80 something percent growth, right? So yeah. estimates are often very, very low. Yeah, I mean, it's these platforms. You, it, the, like, as you're talking about CMLF, I just kept seeing platform, platform, platform pop off in my head. And then I was thinking about going back to NVDA that is the platform for complete industries, right? Like genomics is one of the things that plugs in to that broader platform. Then with gen within genomics, CMLF is the platform within genomics too. So we talk about this all the time. A lot of the companies that we love are these platforms where you can plug in all of these different legs over time and it allows for new legs to exist. So I definitely find that interesting. Another thing to look at Semaphore or what will be Semaphore uh, after CMLF closes is the leadership team. 
And it all starts with the visionary CEO, similar to NVIDIA. Eric Schott is one of the brightest minds in genomics over the last 20 years. He's built groups and companies such as Merck, Rosetta, Sage Bio Networks, PACB, Pacific Biosciences, Icon Institute, and now SEMA4. And so he's had over 400 peer-reviewed papers in leading scientific journals around Alzheimer's disease, obesity, diabetes, and common human diseases. He's wanting to provide personalized healthcare using AI to solve the diseases and challenges that we have in healthcare globally. And so with the AI and technology that's able to apply to all of that, they're able to provide a platform, as Avi was mentioning earlier, that is expandable for partnerships. So if I'm a biopharma company or I'm a drug discovery company, don't I want to use the company that has the best compute and the best AI that's going to make my results more accurate and get faster to the results? That's what the Centralis platform does. And they talk about their mission around a health intelligence company that puts the patients in the center. They're getting patients to sign up to be genetically uh, tested on their genome and to provide that information for future research. So they are leading the way in women's health, and now they're getting into precision oncology and biopharma. And they just had the North Shore partnership that you talked about with over 300,000 more patients. And so with their robust research and their platform, they're already getting recognized. They were on the Forbes list of America's best startup in 2021, CB Insights Digital Health Top 150 in 2020, Gartner Cool Vendor in Healthcare Technology 2020, U.S. Senator Chris Murphy's Innovator of the Month 2020, and then you had the CEO win the Entrepreneur of the Year Award, and then they also won New England Venture Powerhouse MedTech Company of the Year. They're getting validated from other industries, not just in what they're in, and that's because their platform works and it's successful, and AI is getting into all these other healthcare industries to provide what we all want, personalized healthcare. So we can solve the diseases that are uh, affecting the world all over and also providing health care where others can't get it. Might be a good segue to Nanox. Well, I'm just laughing now because Tony's job is awesome. <laughs> both of yeah, our jobs of our are jobs. done. Yeah. Dom yeah. Just, uh, he just took both of our jobs. I, he, he gets it. He, he 100% gets it. And Dom, I got to stop you real quick. I, I, I'm very curious, you know, as a pounder, you know, you started, of course, as a listener of Pounding the Table as we share some of our research, is there certain things that you're specifically listening to? I think you mentioned the conviction in Tony's voice even sometimes, you know, will, will cause you to start to look further into the stock yourself. But just curious, and maybe specifically about CMLF, was there anything we touched on that you said, okay, wow, this is incredible. I need to dig further into this myself. Yeah, great question, Avi. And I would say there's something that your podcast uh, and maybe a few others out there in the investing community, there's not many, but that talk about investing in a better future. And I love that because not only does that make you enjoy following your investments and finding out what stocks you want to get into, but it also makes you want to know more about them and you're rooting for them because you want to live in a better world where technology is saving lives, making life easier, and also providing smarter, happier, richer people in general, right? That's what we're all trying to do and live better together. And so when he was talking about CMLF and some of the other mini monsters, I wasn't just going to take that for a ticket at the, the racetrack. I wanted to go do my own homework and my own diligence because I need conviction. I don't care if Tony's pounding the table on it. 
I want to pound the table on it. So let me go see what he's talking about and see like, okay, what, what's he so happy about with this? And when I started digging in and seeing the leadership and the technology and the third party awards and the undervaluation and what it's looked at, because the industry is not looking at what it can be in the future, what created value can it provide 10 years from now? They're just putting a price tag on it and what they have today. And that's, I guess, one thing I would like to touch on with SPACs is that there's this whole big misnomer around all SPACs are bad. And that's wrong. That's false, right? SPAC is just a vehicle that allows the retail investor to actually get a chance to get in at a fair price to actually make some generational wealth. Now, with that, there's a lot of people taking advantage of that and also market manipulation and how the investment's going. So what do you have to do to pound the table and earn and earn the conviction? It's doing your own diligence. Make sure you learn who is the leadership team? What's their track record? Are they proven? Do you agree with their mission statement? Are they founder led or are they going to dip and sell the company once it goes public? You know, so there's other good SPACs out there that the pounding the table crew has put out in the Bible. And you can go back and download that PDF off the website and see that, look at it now versus then. And the returns are great. And we're not investing for this quarter, this year. We're investing for 10 years from now in the world we want to live in. And we want to have the generational wealth where we get to dictate what we do, when we do, and who we do it with. That's why we invest. Yeah, Dom, I, I love that so much. <laughs> well said. Yeah. I mean, and that's the truth, right? Like I was, we were just talking about this even with NVIDIA, right? Like had it just gone straight from that, like $15 range to where it is today without any huge rips or any huge dips, everyone would be happy. Right. But the perception of the volatility around the name was actually like, that's the reason why people might have been, you know, out of it for a long time and never wanted to get back in or thought it was going to be dead because it went down 50% off of something, but also realize where it came from, right? The thing came from 15, right? And CMLF, yeah, I, I fully agree with the SPAC thing, said that so many times, it's a vehicle, right? So CMLF could easily have IPO'd as a normal company. It deserves, the, it has the pedigree to do that. And what I really like that you were saying is like, it's the platform, right? So that's the thing. It's the plug-in and see where can you use the information that they're going to gather and they're gonna look through and they're gonna create these insights from, and where can you put that? And so as the space grows, right, you've seen a lot of SPACs, a lot, I think it might be one of the top three sectors that have been growing in the SPAC world is these genomics, healthcare, th this new wave of a new industry that we need to digitize and really advance using artificial intelligence and whatever else tools we have at the moment, because that's, you know, we can make as much money as we want. We can have as many cool DPUs. We can have as many TVs. We can have 100 Xboxes, but we need more time to play all 100 Xboxes. And so obviously we're going to be putting in the time and the money to be able to live longer or have the people who are having trouble living in the first place or living longer themselves initially. That's where the money should go because, you know, you have more people who are healthy, happy, sustainably living. And those people are going to be the ones that are generating income in the economy and the entire human race advances in the future. So I just want to point out, too, it's not just that I'm all about CMLF right now. The entire sector to me, I think it's just this these interest rates obviously went up high and these things don't have the best revenues. Some of them don't. CMLF has fantastic valuation at under 10 times next year. So like it's 10 times this year's sales. So it's very crazy for me to consider that it's so cheap and the fact of how high their gross margins will come up to, right? Like it'll be all the way up to like 54% from 22%. And that's one of the big things you got to look for because let's say all else equal, can the company buy itself back over 10 years, right? And I think that if they produce what they're anticipating they do, 
theoretically, like the valuation has to be somewhere, right? Like if they're making that much profit, they can just mm -hmm. keep buying back until that stock goes higher. So that's what I like to see in terms of that specific company, but also the comparison to other companies that are in this space, right? There's not many platforms like CMLF in this space, but there's a lot of different companies that are not making a ton of revenues now, like Twist and NTLA and all these other companies that in three or four or five years will be making a lot of money from their drug discovery, from curing diseases and, and having these gene editing tactics that really do make a positive impact on the world. And the news around these things has been insane, right? And of course, for the platform to succeed, the people who are going to be using the platform have to be doing cool things and advancing in their own right, right? Like we just got recent uh, news from CRISPR uh, for one of their uh, things that have been five years in the making to get any type of data and clinical trials on, and those went well. Twist recently started doing things like collaborations, and they're ac actually outright purchasing something from Distributed Bio that they created together. So these companies are starting to consolidate and work more and more together. Uh, Intelia, another company that we loved and talked about like in the 20s, this company just got European designation, uh, orphan designation for one of its drugs. So you just kind of see that this industry is growing and all the players in it are doing new cool things. Like Intelia also just started expanding on base editing, right? And before Beam was the only base editor. So as these companies grow, they're going to need these insights. They're going to need a place to say, hey, where can I use this data to help me get this next cool drug or to help me advance the base editing techniques or the double-stranded DNA break techniques I have? Mm -hmm. I mean, all of that, I maybe understood 10% of what you just said, but what I did understand, and I was just thinking like, they're already making 200 million roughly, you said, I think. And if you go out and think about that, if you go talk to a thousand people randomly on the street, maybe one person knows who SEMA4 is, right? And so you're thinking they're already making 200 million and they're only at 10X. Like this is, I'm pounding the table again on this. This is a no brainer. I'm going to have to buy some more on, on Monday because I'm just thinking about this. And it is fascinating that no one even knows who they are yet. And this is not just like a startup that has the potential to make some revenue. They're already making money. Avi, great point there. And what I would say is we, we going back to the beginning of the podcast, we're talking about having a balanced, diverse approach. So when you look at investing in CMLF, we're not saying put everything in there. But are we saying that it could possibly develop and provide generational wealth and be a hundred bagger years and years away from now? Yeah, that has the opportunity because they can create new value that's unforeseen now. So that takes us to Intuitive Surgical, who is a leader in surgical robotics and just joined a $100 billion market cap club. But if you look at it way back when it came out, it was a far-fetched idea. In 2003, this is still even past over almost about a year when it was public, was only trading at $4.80. Now it's trading at 865 So do you have the conviction are you doing the due diligence so that you can hold through a five-year period of trading sideways, knowing that your portfolio is diverse, it's growing, you're beating the market, but you're investing in companies that make a better tomorrow? Tony, you want to talk a little bit about ISRG? I know it's a favorite for years as well. So ISRG is actually a stock that I've been following for a long time. And shout out to Smarter Trader, because he's the one who started talking about it, saying it could be a $1 trillion company someday. And I, I mean, I fully agree here, because thinking about the, you know, everything we talk about on the podcast, all the themes about health and investing and what will be a better future in a better world. There's so many different surgeries. There's so many different ailments that people get that are, you know, untreatable today by the human hand. And it's just like these niche procedures that are very, very difficult to accomplish using your hands and your eyes. And of course, if technology being applied to other industries makes those industries more robust and better overall, 
how could it not do the same to one of the most difficult industries to succeed in, which is obviously like very hard surgeries. You know, a lot of neurosurgeries you can't really do. A lot of heart surgeries, they're difficult as well. So I think ISRG has the capability to be able to do things that people with their physical hands in the future won't be able to do either way. Well, right? That's it. just the limit of what the humans can do. Yeah, I mean, it's a good point too, because the talent level too, right? You can get an incredible surgeon in New York doing surgery in West Africa, you know, coming up. So that is going to allow the talent pool of surgeons to go take care of people that may not have the doctor, the skill sets of a surgeon in New York or a top, you know, metropolitan area. So, and the last thing I'll say there too, Tony, is thinking about what was going on with COVID, right? Elective surgeries were not even allowed for people. So I had talked about this on Twitter. I said, ISRG earnings are going to like absolutely demolish. And I think they're just starting to again, hit the tip of that iceberg as people come back into this, you know, idea that, Hey, I can go out and get an elective surgery right now. And a lot of what uh, ISRG is doing is those elective surgeries. So I'd expect them to continue to dominate here, you know, moving forward. If you're more of a safer investor and don't want to look at a specific stock within this field, I always talk about IHI, uh, which is robotic surgeries in general, but ISRG is definitely the leader of the pack. You're spot on, Avi. And 30% revenue growth last quarter, that was indicative of people having elective surgeries again. But more importantly, they had 26% year-over-year shipments of their DaVinci systems shipped. So they're getting more systems out there, which in their revenue stream and their business model, it's all about a razor and blades approach. So it's going to continue to increase their earnings per share, which in fact, they beat estimates by 135%. That just shows you analysts don't really know how to figure out what to predict on a price point. So we have to do our own due diligence and we have to understand our companies. So they ended Q1 with $7.2 billion in cash. Could they make a future acquisition? I don't know. They looks like they could, you know, definitely have the means to do that. I would love them to purchase Nanox, but I don't know, Tony. I know yep. we've had discussions about that. I would love that, that too. I think that's a fantastic move for them, but uh, maybe they're waiting to see the multi-source before, approval first. Before we jump into Nanox, I want to go back to what you were just talking about, the, the razor and blades approach. I know we talked about this a few days ago too, Dom, where it's not necessarily SaaS, right? It's not like multiple revenues like a SaaS company would be, but you know they're making money from the surgeries themselves. But this razor and blade approach, can you just talk to me a little bit more about what that is? And that is kind of their version of SaaS essentially? Yeah, no, exactly right. Uh, it's the reoccurring revenue that they can bank on and it's profitable. So when you look at your shaving blades, Gillette or any of those others that are out there, it's not... The, the razor itself, they're making their profits on. It's those expensive blades. They're like freaking like $10 for four blades. So they're not using like the same surgery blades on me than they would use on Tony, right? Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully. All, yeah, yeah. All of their instruments, uh, they actually have 70 different instruments that are used for what are called multi-port surgical platforms. And after so long, they have to be repurchased. And then they also have to have maintenance on these systems. So you have to make sure someone perform a robot performing surgery on someone has to be in perfect uh, shape from a software perspective. So there's other businesses that do this where it's a slow compounding profitable machine. And if you have a great moat and great technology that's patented, it's hard to disrupt. Right now, there's no one really looking to eat intuitive intuitive surgicals lunch. I mean, there's people that have tried, but there's really no one out there yet who's a formidable foe. So yeah, I think that that's another 
type of investment that can be at the bottom of the bonsai. It's mm-hmm. more reliable. You look at how profitable they are. And if they're using that cash wisely, they can then make other acquisitions to then create new revenue streams. Exactly. And what's really cool about it and thinking about it in terms of the bonsai just overall, right? And, and I just want to keep touching on if you're listening again and still scratching your head at the bonsai, it's just your construction of your portfolio, right? Like you want to have a strong base branching out into areas that will eventually grow themselves. And so when you think about ISRG, it had that time of not moving for a long, long time and people questioning whether it will ever get there, whether it will ever get approval. And also consider the fact that they're literally performing surgeries of the highest level on people's bodies, right? So that's that's the probably the hardest thing ever to get approved, I would assume, because you're literally doing things to people's bodies with a robot. I mean, obviously it's guided by a surgeon, but regardless, there's a lot of responsibility there for them to succeed and do well. And so that's why, you know, over the last 10 years, they've gotten to the point where, hey, we think that we know actually that this company is doing the best because they are in the lead and they will continue to be in the lead. And maybe, yeah, someone comes along and, and does the same thing, right? But there's 8 billion people. I doubt that one company beats off for robotic surgeries. Thinking again, though, about this whole idea of in a five-year period, right? Like we saw Nanox instantly. And like, you know that I, I'm a big fan of Nanox. And that's because of the potential I see in an untapped two-thirds of the world market, that total addressable market that is not even competing against the current systems that are, even though they're one to $3 million and 2,000 kilograms, those won't be in those places. You'll need another device to make sense in that area, right? And for me, thinking like, hey, okay, so it's a small valuation, $1.45 billion, thinking about what would happen, what would the actual projected revenues, they're saying $1.4 billion recurring rev, a ton of it, and, and most of the revenue is off that MSAIS, software scans as a service, basically, model, right? So I love the fact that it's kind of doing all the things that we're talking about thematically, these high-margin companies that are not really labor intensive, they're not really capital intensive, they're just kind of skinning off of anything that they do. And that is how you turn a company from a small guy to a big guy that's got a lot of different heads to pivot into, right? That's how you get those C-limited legs. That's how you get the legs that we see NVIDIA now. I don't even know what to call them because they're an everything company. It's like an everything bagel. Literally, they have everything on them and they have more that I'm sure they're going to be getting into with partnerships. So seeing that Nanox got that FDA clearance for their single source initially, and now they're moving on to that multi-source. I think that that is obviously the ticket to know whether or not, right? Because once they get the multi-source, then it's able to be commercialized. And they have a lot of these contracts with people that, you know, it's not anyone random. It's USA Rad. It's like the big guys. And also all over the world, it's a lot of interest in not just the United States, because those places are probably the ones that need the equipment even more so. And just knowing that over time, Yes, this company, oh, I've been in it since the day it started trading. I'm happy to wait, right? It's still up 70%. And knowing that it's one step closer to saying, check, check, check on my list of thesis, you know, points to hit for the company, that single source was what I've been waiting for. So knowing that, yes, the stock is lower and A, because like, you know, it's a small cap and it got crushed and there's shorts and this and that. And it's just the general thematic trend of macro market right now. But the company itself, right? What happens when they get that commercialized approval? Who will be buying that company? Will the other big funds, the institutional money pile and say, hey, they have the potential now to really revolutionize the world and succeed? Or will everyone just be asleep at the wheel and wait for ISRG part two to happen kind of thing? That's really where I'm thinking about it. But yeah, it could take five years and it likely will for it to materialize into something that you can put into the base. Taking things full circle on that, Tony, is great leadership again. We see this common theme of founder-led leaders who are invested in these companies like it's their children, right? 
Ron Polakine is a serial entrepreneur who has been proven successful, created the wireless charging technology, and he's also a social activist and wants to solve a problem that is completely affecting our world. Two-thirds of the world not being able to just have preventative healthcare in an x-ray machine. That's something that I believe in a better future and that I want to get behind and put my money on. They already got FDA clearance on their single source nano technology, and they've had several deals with large companies like Foxconn and SK Telecom that want to help drive this mission forward. So I believe that they're all in to make sure to provide that. And they've also had the cloud technology with some of the largest radiologists, cloud companies out there to help provide analytics on this data. Imagine the optionality and the value with the data that's out there that they're going to be collecting per scan. What data they can provide for personalized healthcare for not only two-thirds of the world, but the whole world. So there's other valuations or other created values that you can't see right now. But if you look big enough and you do your due diligence so you can pound the table, you can see that. Um, and I think that leads to our last stock or second to last stock to talk about today uh, mm-hmm. is, is Teladoc. Yeah, what the I heck think- happened with, with Teladoc, <laughs> man? I, I was That's what everybody's saying. I, I was playing earnings and you know, apparently 151% year on year is not good anymore. Seeing 151%, any normal person would think that's phenomenal and they raised guidance yet the stock plummets down. Right. So like, what happened there, Don? What do you, what do you think went on? So, so, and Tony, feel free to jump in here. Cause I know uh, as a hedge fund manager, you understand what's going on with the big players and how they move the market and what they're looking for in rotations. But I would say my take on this is this is one of those times where we're in that five-year lull for Teladoc. We're in that time where it's Mm -hmm. trading sideways and their vision is not strayed. They know what they want to accomplish. They're not shaking in their boots because their price went down. In fact, here's a quote from their CEO, uh, Jason Gorovic. Our innovative approach to whole person care continues to resonate in the marketplace and the opportunity in front of us to drive value through improved outcomes and lower costs and a better consumer experience has never been greater. They feel confident. And when you really dig deep into the earnings, and we have some great investors on the FinTwit community uh, who've put their two cents on there to provide uh, additional conviction of their own and to make you do the research to show that they are doing fine. If you look at it here from growth to value, one of the great Twitter investors to follow, he talks about this looks a lot like when Square was trading from 2018 to March 2020. And if you were impatient and you got out and you didn't do your homework, you missed out. You missed out on that big five to eight X return, depending on where you got in. Right now, you're getting Livongo Health for free. You're actually getting it cheaper. It's cheaper than what it was when they actually made the acquisition. Mm -hmm. And they've grown crazily. And and also just thinking about the synergies between the companies, like they just started posting the revenues together. Right. So knowing that there was only like a 25% overlap in the majority of the things that they both offer simultaneously, knowing that they can now are, you know, literally in bed together forever, seeing where they're going to be taking all that information, both from Livongo, those services, Teladoc, those services, all the partners that each of them had and now are growing together, that will go into a lot of different places. I think a lot of people 
are worried about it for a couple of reasons. And I would say the main reason why it's down and it's been kind of in this base pattern, it had a couple short squeeze spikes, this and that. But for me, the main reason is it's that poster child of a stock that did super well because of COVID, right? It is that telehealth and that's new to everybody because of COVID. And it's that health monitoring, which is now prominently in people's minds because of COVID, right? So I think if, and it's the same with Zoom, right? Like those things have just been kind of holding there for a while. That needs time to catch up and become normalized and mainstream. Obviously, COVID you mentioned, but in terms of this competition that's coming out, right? Everyone and their mother seems to be doing telehealth. The big news being Amazon getting into that. Obviously, competition will enter the space. Should we be worried about that long term, do you think, with Teladoc? I think Amazon getting into telehealth in general would obviously be the second. That's actually the second reason I was going to bring up of why people are probably selling it off. And I remember the day it came out, people, it started dropping. And then from there, it just continued to drop. And everyone kind of thought, oh, well, hey, Amazon's entering the race. Let's run away. Okay, I get it. Because Amazon, when they enter the race, it's scary, right? Like they're the big player. They have infinite cash, really. Like they can do anything they want. However, is that what they're going to do is my question, right? At first, it began with just doing it for their employees. It was a private thing. And now they're, they're thinking about expanding it, this and that, sure. But I will say, say like how many people are already using Teladoc and how many people are already using Livongo and look at the results that you can get from using Livongo's preventative health. And then look at the costs that TDoc has associated with, right? Like thinking about when you combine those two companies, like basically Amazon has to create two companies in order for it to try to rival these things because now like that merger made them one company, but they're two very different things, right? One's monitoring your health all the time to make sure you don't have to go to the doctor. One's dealing with you when you're at the doctor. So I think that once again, with the 8 billion people in the world, the partnerships that they have are so, so strong. It's not one of those, all the revenue comes from two or three people. It's a very broad market for who they're serving. And they're already, I think it's something, what did you say, Dom? It was 40% of the Fortune 500 already uses them. So I think that that's validation and telling in and of itself. But I do understand the competition for many different one of these. I think that you'll see some consolidation in the industry. I think companies like Teladoc will continue to do what they've already been doing, like merging. A lot of these will come through SPACs and base for a long time. But overall, the sector is clearly growing and it's becoming one of those mainstream things. And I think always the case is the smartest or the first wins. And so far, they're both. Um, And I think it's hard to beat that off its high horse. So just kind of expounding a little bit between what Dom had said and then what you said, if I'm sitting here as a trader, right, and we're in that five-year lull, or maybe as Don mentioned, we're entering that five-year lull, do we get out for five years and then try to time it when, it, when it's going to pop again? Or do you just sit on it and just expect it to kind of grind over over the years? For me, like I am not in TDOC right now, and I'll be waiting for it to go back over 200. And I just know this because like for me, I, I mean, I don't mind missing the first 15 to 20% of a move to understand that, hey, like, this company's not going to go down a ton more, right? All the sellers have been selling and they're done selling, right? And like the trend is changing and people are now starting to normalize it, not as just a COVID only name. And the thing is like a lot of these names are getting wrapped up, but TDoc is the poster child of a company that went 10 or whatever X, Lavongo went like 20X or 10X too because of COVID. So now it takes time, right? So as a trader thinking about investing long-term, of course, like what Dom was saying as well, is important to, to have that diversification, right? Like if you own Teladoc and it hasn't been moving at all, maybe have less Teladoc now. And when it starts to move, add more into Teladoc. And that's just kind of the way I do it. I think I always average in versus averaging down. I do still like, I think the company is great. I just think that people have this perception in their minds now of 
oh, COVID's over. So, you know, people are almost all vaccinated, this and that. I'll tell you, like, I really don't think this is completely over. It'll be continuing to be a problem over time. And we just, you know, we just did a travel ban from India, which starts on May 4th. So I think that just around the world, you'll continue to see a focus on healthcare. But I think that it will take time for the valuation of where TDOC and Livongo came together to be happy for investors that are just getting into it now and, and trend in the right direction as a normalized stock that's not getting hit by all these macro rate factors and the psychology of COVID uh, thinking that it's over in a lot of people's minds. And for me, I, it's okay to have different investment strategies. There's so many ways to win in the market. I think it's important for us to highlight that. Um, you know, I want to keep getting further on this downturn and dollar cost average down, it could possibly with the technicals get to like the 150 mark because I plan on holding this for over 10 plus years. And I see some things that long-term are, are can't really refute. Well, some of them are from 2021 to 2028, the global virtual care market revenue is expected to expand a CAGR of 26%. Who was first to market? It was Teladoc. Who has the relationships with all the healthcare companies? It's Teladoc. Do you think they're going to want to work with Amazon or another competitor who's already met all the HIPAA compliance requirements and everything else there? Another thing, they're now looking at expanding globally. The company has services in over 130 countries, and they service over 50 million, and that's mostly in the U.S. Think about with 5G rolls out, how they can provide telemedicine into two-thirds of the world who don't have cell phones or maybe not two-thirds, but the large amount of area in the world where they don't have that coverage and they don't have that healthcare and they can't get a doctor, that's unforeseen created value that you can't predict right now. They also have 40% of the Fortune 500, which Tony stated, and they're projected to grow 30 to 40% CAGR in the next five years. So not only are they growing at rate of what virtual healthcare is, they're going to grow faster than what virtual healthcare is. Now, with real revenues and strong with revenues. With real revenues. Exactly right. And I know a lot of people want a profit now. We're in this cycle where everyone needs to turn a profit, right? Me and Tony talked about this before. So we look here, and thanks to at uh, Plant Math One, another great Twitter follow, uh, he says, Additional expenses noted in their report this earnings, 68 million was in at Livongo stock awards vesting from the merger, 37 million in amortization of acquired intangibles from the merger, 87 million tax charged due to the merger. That was 192 one-time expenses. That's not, $192 million is not gonna hit again. And guess what? Their total loss for this past quarter was 199 million. So they basically missed the mark of break even by $7 million and their EBITDA growth year over year last year or quarter was 431%. So is it not fair to say that they might actually break past even next quarter? That could happen, right? They may be playing earnings conservatively. And then lastly, what I like to just focus on is leadership again. They went out and they had just hired this past week, the chief innovation officer, Klaus Torp Jensen. Look at his track record of where he's come from. He was at IBM for seven years and was a chief architect on their API team. Seems like a platform to me with Teladoc and Livongo Health and other companies for holistic healthcare, APIs, do the math. Then we look at CTO and head of architecture for CVS Health and Aetna for five, almost five years. You think he's bringing some relationships into that? I would think so. And then we look here, he's going in the, the toughest things to solve. He was the chief digital officer and chief CTO for Memorial Sloan uh, Kettering Cancer Center. So 
they're doing the right things and they don't care about what the market's saying. It's actually a great segue to skills because that's exactly oh, what wow, we're seeing yeah, there. It's a, it's a perfect segue <laughs> to skills. Also, yeah, considering the entire market psychology and the actual macro factors affecting that, let's uh, let's dive into that. But that is definitely something you and Avi, I'll, I'll ask the questions here, guys. So let's really talk about Feek or now it's called skills because we were talking about it when it was Feek, when it was $10, right? So Understanding a the perspective of where the stock was and right where it went to, understanding that it was at ten dollars where research was shared, and seeing what it's done since then is definitely crucial to any investment, right? Because buying a stock after it's ran three or four hundred percent is very different than buying it before it runs and the merger is complete and all these things that have happened to it recently. But of course, I think skills is one of those things similar to CCIV that was a darling that fell from the sky, right? Fell from heaven. But why? Because it went so high in the first place, right? Like, I think if you consider the fact of like, had skills just gone from 10 to 18 or wherever it is today, thinking about that, right, you'd be very, very happy knowing that it just steadily went from 10 to 18 over three months, right? But because it went to the high 40s and then back down to the 12s, and then at that point, all of Twitter capitulated and all the guys who were hating on it thought they were right. And then, of course, the short squeeze happened, Kathy slammed into it, and that was just the world's biggest I think that's just market psychology, market, you know, manipulation and not even in the complete wrong way, but some of it was right. These short reports came out and hit a lot of them with the same information. You had anonymous Twitter accounts with a short report that had caused drops in the stock, right? Like I've never seen somebody with an anonymous short report with no followers and no credit, no credence to what they're saying, cause a stock to do that, right? There's no disrespect. I have no idea who the person is, but I think it's a joke that the market considers that such an important factor to consider in their investment thesis. But if you actually look at the company, which is what I want you guys to talk about and do, I think it'll be a little bit of a different story, especially if you have more than a five second time frame like a goldfish. Yeah. No, I mean, I think talking about some of the macros and talking about some of these short reports, right? Let's talk about the most recent one where they're talking about his brother getting upset over a few percentage points, you know, with the stock, which yes, of course, that's a big story, but it's not a big story in terms of the stock. Let's be honest, like, they're going to settle outside their family, it's not going to be detrimental to the company overall. And talking more about the macros too, Tony, obviously, they discussed going into India, uh, we see everything that's happening right now in India. So that may slow that down a little bit uh, with everything that's happening within COVID. But I think something huge to talk about it that I think is massively important. Any new game that they have that they're building out, they don't put that on future earnings, whatever. So in terms of their expectations for the upcoming earnings, they don't show any of that. So by nature, they're going to surprise with that extra revenue that was not anticipated whatsoever. So every single earnings, if they keep this status quo up of, of how they're looking at things from an earnings perspective, every single earnings, in my opinion, will be somewhat of a surprise. And then, of course, there's many other partnerships. Dom, I know you wanted to touch on this a little bit as well. Feel free to jump in on the NFL you're talking about earlier. Yeah, I think, Avi, the, the big thing to call out here is with short reports, uh, especially anonymous, uh, where's the validity and where's the conviction in your report if you can't put your name on it? And so we look at it and we look at all these different short reports and um, and everyone in Twitter is getting upset about this, the stock going down and going to 21, but it was 42 and now it's 12. I was happy. I was like, are you kidding me? They're going to short this this much? Like I was buying tons of shares at 12 and $13 and putting it on Twitter. Like, what are you guys like super sale? It's like a fire sale. Like Christmas special, Christmas Eve, like Thanksgiving, Black Friday sale. Like I was like, okay, I'll see you in a couple of weeks for earnings. Like, thank you. Um, 
but then which they are coming like, up right that it's uh yeah yeah you know get your black friday sales now you know or you're you know i, I just i don't understand the, the thought process because nothing fundamentally changed with the company nothing fundamentally changed it was mm-hmm. literally a short squeeze with some bogus short reports and oh by the way they said there's no nfl partnership Hmm. I guess they didn't check the website Go to Google. and I guess, yeah. And I guess they didn't look that there's actually a competition that just went live in Q2 uh, or for Q2 for the developer competition. Yeah. But let's Two days look ago. What, yeah. Two days ago. But let's take it a step further, Tony. What did they announce today? They announced with pictures with the NFL on actually going after their crucial catch intercept cancer program. And they're actually doing a weekend competition for American Cancer Society, which is ACS, which is one of their nonprofit charities that they do gaming for. And so they're having tournaments for May 1st, all the way to May 2nd. And all the proceeds are going for the Intercept Cancer Program. So the NFL is literally putting their name out there saying, we want to conquer cancer with you. Can we use your platform as an advocacy for this? And if you've done your homework and you've looked at skills before, you know that they work with a lot of nonprofits because they do care about giving back. They do care about a brighter future. And oh, by the way, their CEO said, yeah, I want to see this company outlive me. I want this to be a hundred year legacy. And mm-hmm. people laughed at him. Even the CNBC guy was like, 100 years, that's pretty pretty uh, ambitious there. Those are the people that I want to invest in. I want to mm-hmm. invest in the ambition, pe- ambitious people that you you know, you know don't think that they can do it. And the, he's proven he's been a successful CEO. He's sold his companies. He's been a director at Intuit. He also talks about the failures that he's learned from as going through companies and the the pitfalls and learning moving forward and how to apply that with this company. And he admits that there's not any great games on there yet that are top number one sellers. You look at the app Mm -hmm. store and there's none, but guess what? He's done 95% year over year growth without it, without it. So him and some of his, his top staff members, he said, yeah, he said in the interview, he said, we're laughing about it. Like, we know we're going to get a number yeah, one he game. Said, he said, we'll see it on quarter two. Like, he's like, we'll, we'll, yeah. we'll see it when we talk about well, it in the and quarter. And they just got Big Buck Hunter, which I know that a, a few of the pounders have been playing with and said it's actually fun, which I played a few of the games. And, and I'll admit, I'm a huge skills fan. The game sucks so far, but I cannot pound the table enough that this is not a gaming company. They are a platform for gaming companies right. to build on this. And with esports and everything exploding, like this company is here to stay. And what I'll say a few a few things about that is that the games that people are saying are not the best games are the ones that they brought back from the dead. So it's very important to understand that those games only have that kind of retention growth at all and stickiness because of embedding skills in another platform. And another really important thing, I think that a lot of people in the short reports, and this might be the most, I guess, damning thing for people in, in, in their mentality is how they calculate these revenues, right? And I was reading a lot about people are saying that, you know, they're, they're double counting things, this and that. That's usually how the comps for that industry work, right? If you look at the casinos and the other companies, like in that similar space, right? It's obviously like, it's hard to compare skills because skills is very original. But if you use the same comps that you value for your value names, right, it's pretty much the same there on the revenue standpoint. And so I think a lot of it has to do with just a cascading amount of like, there's so many things that happened that just made it go down, right? There was the secondary offering, there was earnings, Andrew sold a little, and it was just short report after short report, right? Then that's just like the perfect pie for a company to go. And I think it also ran way too high. Like, honestly, like, I think that if something had gone slowly from 10 to 20, 
with all this news, it'd be a very different perspective than something getting squeezed when all small caps were getting squeezed because those were the conditions, right? It's not these, it's not, it's it's not idiosyncratic risk. It's systematic risk that happened, right? It's everything, not just one thing. It's all the small cap names that had done super, super well, right? Because of seasonality, December, November, January, February, those are the ones where you saw that those small caps really took a stronghold, right? And of course, as the vaccination numbers increase and people thought reopening was coming closer and closer and closer, and we're moving towards that at a very steady pace, people revalue things, right? So those huge runs maybe should never have happened that hard, all right? But that does not detract away from the fact of whether or not it's a good company. So that's a little difference of perspective there as a trader and an investor, understanding that, hey, like this thing did go vertical like 400 plus percent. And of course, evaluations might've gotten stretched there at the top, but thinking about what it is going to be in the next four or five years, it will get there and then double and be further. Who knows? But I think mm. that with all these strong things going, I think if you can get like maybe a number one game out of this NFL competition, I think things will be very different. Also, Big Buck Hunter, I love that. I've been playing that since I was a kid. Mm-hmm. So seeing that they're moving into cool things, like I think that's more telling than some like you know nitpicky things about him and his brother. Well, how about Jerry Bruckheimer too? We, we never discussed that enough. Like he's on the board now too. Top Gun Mavericks coming out. I'm not, you know, I don't have any information about this, but that potentially could be a game as well. They can just start skinning games. And with Jerry now in the mix, that can open up a whole new leg of entertainment and get into games and video games and movies. It's it's, it's crazy where this thing can go. So it's just the start. They have shit games right now. Yes, it is a platform. It is a platform. It is a platform. Get that through your head. Let's go. And let's talk about what a platform can do and how it can create new value and optionality. He's talked about, Andrew has talked about numerous times about gamification on fitness and education. If I'm teaching a science class in middle school and I can actually have them compete in a game to learn, do you think they're going to actually be more engaged? Most definitely. Fitness is so hard for me to get engaged with, but I like data. I like statistics. So if you're telling me that I can bet Avi that I can beat him on my makeshift Peloton bike that has all the sensors and everything else. And I can bet him 10 bucks that I'm going to beat him in a race. That makes it more enticing, right? Or if I want to say, I'm going to get more steps than Tony this week and I'll bet you 20 bucks, right? So you got to think about the platform and its applicability of future value and future optionality. Mm. Don't just look at what it is today. And the fact that they were successful what company can you say that has 95% gross margin and is growing nearly triple digit revenue, right? And we know it's a trending industry with many, many tailwinds. And they just dropped yesterday that their CIO, Miriam, uh, got named on the Forbes CIO next list, right? They have good leadership and she's been there since 2013. So I just think that if you don't do your due diligence, you won't be able to understand the company and what it's capable of and new values and have a diversified bonsai tree. We're not saying make everything skills. I'll tell you skills is in my top 10 positions. I think it's my number seven right behind C limited. And I've been adding on so much because I knew I had the conviction and did so much homework on it that I wanted it up there with everything else because it's still a very small cap. And we talk about opportunity costs, which Tony talks about a lot, which is so important as an investor Mm -hmm. to learn. Your money and opportunity costs also have to be diversified to reach your financial goals. You can't have everything in a blue chip unless that's the slow growth that you're looking for, but you have to have a diversified portfolio. 
Yeah, I, I totally sorry, agree I could talk there. skills all day. No, 100%. And what's important here to realize is, of course, like you've done extensive research on skills. You might have done more research up to now than, than I me. have recently. <laughs> right. Amazing. So and like and that's that's the important thing is like we d- dig into skills and things change all the time. Right. So like th- this recent news just happened like today and a couple of days ago. And for people to just like make a lifetime assumption on a company, whether it'll succeed or fail off of its initial stock price. Right. Like it's not the fundamentals as you said, right? People were just saying, oh, I'm right, it's up. Oh, I'm right, it's down. But are you right because of your conviction or are you right because of market factors that impacted a stock's price and not the company that's underlying it, right? So I think this applies for a bunch of other names we talk about, right? Like I still have my position in Nanox, of course, Fiverr, CCIV, and we touch on a lot of those names and we'll touch on them more over the coming weeks, of course, but it's one of those things where you have to understand that it's a bucket of stocks that got hit and it's not just a small bucket, right? You look at TTD, that's a that's a you know golden goose for uh, Fintwit and right, and that one's down a significant percent. I think it's 30 something, 40% almost at one point. Tesla similarly, and it's a lot of these names that no matter how good they are, right? They get lumped in to this uh, high growth uh, value compression that people are all about and looking at nonstop, right? Like you see the cruises and the airlines and all these companies go back to where they were, right? And then that's where people want to put their money in. But then considering that, how long is it going to take for them to catch a profit and actually get back to where they were pre-COVID? Because now they've done a bunch of dilutive, you know, raises. They've done it. They've taken on a bunch of debt. Their market caps are sometimes two plus times higher than they were at the same stock price that it is now. Like Dave and Buster's is back to the highs. Carnival Cruise Line's getting there. A lot of these names like they may look like they're they're the ones that are recovering because of COVID, but those are now the same factors I think that have applied to the small caps are now applying to these value names. But if you really look in three to four or five years, how much money is like Royal Caribbean going to make and how, what margins will they, they'll never get to 95% margins. It's not a company that's that kind of operating margin possible. It's just not, it's a very capital and labor intensive business. And I just stick away from those. Granted, that was a phenomenal trade if you bought it at 10, right? Whatever. Mm-hmm. But I think that it's very different if you're looking five years out, because who knows where those will go in five years. Maybe they'll steadily grow with the market slowly, because I think a lot of the gains from those names have came back too. Um, But I think we're going to see a big broadening in the market. A lot of names that were the high growth tech winners that are going to be the disruptive names are the ones that are now getting punished for doing so well. And the ones that have been doing so poorly are now overly getting benefited and without any regard to their actual valuations or market cap structures. And I think it's very hypocritical to consider that as a value play when there's very little value in it if you consider all the debt and the diluted market share. Exactly. Well, and the other thing too there, I just really quick on profitability and stocks that are recovering, there are companies that are being manipulated as we talked about skills and others from a large investor perspective. When you look at companies that have a huge short float, and have solid fundamental revenues and profits across the board and good future growth expectations, then it's just a matter of someone wanting to drive that price down and rebuy it back. I'll give you a great example. And if you follow me on Twitter at at DominicRinaldi9, you'll see that Fulgent Genetics is one of those stocks. I'm looking at it right here, and it's now at almost 31% short float since April 15th. Insane. Okay? Insane. Dom, I got to I got to say it real quick cuz you you did mention it before we were talking. You said that you had your own and I got to do this one time for the throwback. Mini monster. Talk about FLGT as your mini monster. That's amazing. 
It is. It is. And it's the one I pitched you guys a while back um, because I, I'm convicted in it. I did the homework. I did the research. I listened to their investor calls. I watched the YouTube videos, which I highly recommend you do to go watch the CEOs and look at these results. And they're not a COVID play only. That is exactly what shorts are saying is that they've just done well because of COVID. Guess what? They didn't do their due diligence because they were growing 50% year over year on their DNA sequencing before COVID even started. Their profit margin is 50.8%. Their operating margin, after all said and done with overhead, is 70%. What do we call that? We call that efficiency at its finest. They're growing revenues, triple digit revenue growth. And return on assets are 46% and return on equity is 65%. They have no debt on the books with over $600 million in cash. They're going to provide or they have provided guidance already for a beat for this coming week. In a huge earnings. beat. Yeah. Yes. And they've even hinted at an acquisition to use that cash strategically. So mm -hmm. why would something that was as high as $190 a share now all the way back down to $77 as a $2 billion market cap, when we just highlighted in the beginning of the podcast, do we think genomics is going away or do we think it's a future part of healthcare? I mm. think we said it's a future part of healthcare, right yep. guys? Uh, yep, a hundred percent. And I think that's really, he's an interesting stock for me because I was in that one very early on. And I, I remember posting a chart on Twitter about it being thin air because it was, and I, would, I knew it was being held down by those forces. And once it breaks free, it could just scream. And I think that was honestly a big part of it. It overshot. But if you also consider like, what's it trading at? Like two, three times sales. And that's very crazy to me to consider like a, a stock that's anywhere near genomics trading at that. But I think a big part of the reason why it sold off is similar to the TDOC. Uh, people are thinking that, hey, all this money just comes from COVID, but also how many companies got to where they are today because of COVID and thinking how much money do they have now? They're hinting at an acquisition. They're looking for places that are going to provide lasting value from something that's going to be stopping eventually is this COVID vaccination and testing that they're doing. Like over time, so that will be, you know, diminishing in their revenue over time, but who knows, maybe they'll add something else, which they're hinting at, and that'll make up the difference or more. And I think that's another thing to consider with CM4 is they have all this cash, or they had like $500 million in cash, and it got added to their market cap. So people are like, oh, it's a high valuation. But what you do with that cash is where you go. So maybe you buy a company that adds your revenues, right? Let's say CM4 is a 2.5 billion at 10, right? So 500 million. So 20% of that cash is just added to their market cap. What do they do with that cash? So if they add something that's gonna provide a 20% exponential growth in addition, then it's like you're you're just using that cash to add more to the company. You're just buying more CMLF with money, right? And then the valuation lines up to why it had that 500 million added to the market cap. And I think the similar thing can happen here in, in, uh, in Fulgen if it's smart enough to do it properly, which- Last thing I'll say on Fulgen so too <laughs> is, to your point, their own leadership team have conviction. 34% of ownership and insider ownership. And then there's 34% of institutional ownership. So institutional money is saying, this is going to be something. Now, we don't know what's pushing and pulling in the shorts and everything else, but it's 34% insider owned. They're betting on themselves that they can provide the lowest cost DNA sequencing, and they've proven it because they won the CDC contract for COVID. So I'm pounding um, the table. I'm giving a double pound. I, I encourage you to do your own due diligence so you can pound it too. So I did a little DD myself and I see as of April 23rd, it is not in your top 10. So I do have to play devil's advocate here. Why is it not in your top 10? 
because a man can only make so much dry powder every week. So unfortunately, <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> I started as a young, naive investor and I took a lot of money or what was a lot for me between my four bases, which were NVIDIA, Trade Desk, Shopify, Mercado Libre. Luckily, they were worked out, but that's why they have squeezed out. And then Magnite and apps have really pushed up ahead. But um, they will get to my top 10 because I am convicted in them and I am double pounding full gen- genetics. And I am packing my bags because you just took both of our jobs. You did. You absolutely yeah, dominated job. the table today. So literally... And I love it. We're standing up right now. This was awesome. I I love this, Avi. Like we we bring pounders on and they're pounding the table because this is like the whole point of the podcast, right? We didn't start some random like stock picking show. It's not what this is, right? We want to teach how the markets work and what to do to be successful in the markets over years, not the next Dogecoin, which I mean, I do wish I was getting in Dogecoin I mean, at 0.00. SNL, it could right, pop. Yeah. Shout out to yeah. Detman. <laughs> yeah, exactly though. But having this conviction is of the utmost importance, right? Like I see CMLF go from 10 to 27 to 13. And I think, hey, like, okay, I think that's an, I, that's an ad for me. I'm not worried. I'm like, this company is trading at where it's trading at. It's going to get these margins. It's going to do all these things because I know the research, because I did it myself and not because someone else told me. So it's mm-hmm. nice to bring it full circle because Dom's tying the table the way the table was meant to be pounded. Earn it. Like, don't just sit this is not, we're, we're not gambling and, and you're, we're not a racehorse here. Like, don't, mm-hmm. you're not getting your own ticket here by just listening to what Avi and, and Tony pick or Dom. Like, do your own research, learn how the market is, study it, enjoy it, find companies you love and you want to invest in and you believe in, and then be patient. And then add to them. It's not a hard concept to, it's a hard concept to continue to follow. But once you get it down and you see the results, it just makes you want to work more and harder and to do your own due diligence and find that next unicorn. So I'm pounding the table. I love it. But that being said, folks, happy to be back. And I'm happy to be coming back next week to pound the table a little bit more. See you guys next week. Every night I flex, I'm making big moves. That's a big move, big money, big moves. That's a big move. I'm making big moves. That's a big move, big money, big moves. That's a big move. Yeah. Make a play, don't talk about it. Master P, I'm about it, about it. This one here for all that try to count me out, and they still counting. Honestly, I never doubt it. Say the top is never crowded. Well, I'm trying to climb the mountain till I need a few accountants. Stock is rising, perfect timing. I'm in Brickle. Shawty sliding, she want sushi, she want eel sauce for the rice. I just peel off with the light, took the heels off for the ride. Don't say real talk, this a lie. I'm a real one, I provide, yeah.